Discipline and consistency separate the good from the great. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kozowski, and we are diving in, actually going to Calgary, Alberta this time. I'm love to showcase some Canadian women who have been doing amazing things in this world. And I'm really excited. I'm kind of on a little bit of a streak today of interviewing. Um, Julie Friedman Smith, she is a highly engaged parenting expert specializing in mentoring and guiding parents of toddlers through teens. With over 20 years of experience, she transforms exhausted, worried, frustrated parents who feel like they nag, argue, yell, or give in into family leaders who communicate in a safe, respectful ways that build stronger, long-lasting connections with their kids, even when they didn't believe it was possible. As a mom, she has been right where you are now. And I'm excited to have you, Julie. Thank you. I'm really happy to be talking with you. <laughs> well, I first off, do we want to just give a shout out to our friend, mutual friend, Darius Bashar of, of the Artist Morning. This is how I was able to connect with this beautiful soul, um, Julie, um, through that group and get to know a little bit more about what she does. And it, it's a group where we meditate, we journal, and then we go into the lounge for deeper discussions. Yeah. So thank you, Julie, for coming on the show today. My pleasure. And and thank you, Darius, for introducing us. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things, you know, I'm always curious about how people get into the field of work that they do. So if you could share with us, what got you into becoming the parenting expert that you are today? Well, the easiest way to talk about that is that I was a teacher and I was teaching with one of my fellow teachers and we actually watched uh, an episode of the Oprah show. And it was a conversation with women entrepreneurs who had built successful businesses based on their passion. And so the next day we were sitting in our office talking about, you know, if you, if you weren't a teacher, what would you do? And this woman was the head of school at the time. And she said that her favorite thing was connecting with parents and making things feel easier for their family. And I said, oh yeah, I love that too, because she and I really were teaching, were I was a music teacher in the school, so I knew every family and I was in touch with all the families and, and really making that happen. And we thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to, to do a little bit more of that in our, in our normal teaching lives, like just as an extra for the parents. And then from there, we, uh, we, we did it one day at our school. We just put together a workshop answering questions from parents that we get over and over and over again. And then the school down the street called and said, or could you do that for us? And then it it grew from there. And so that was 23 years ago, I think. And, and for 18 and a half years, I had a company with this other uh, person called Parenting Power. And then in COVID, we decided that uh, after 18 and a half years, it was time to, that, that business had grown into an adult and it could go on its way and we would do our own things, try something different. And so I've been continuing on this work on my own, but that's really how we got into it at first. 
I find it fascinating that, you know, sometimes it's a television show, it's a conversation, it is being at a conference that triggers on new things. Like my podcast was born because I was sitting in a conference room listening to a gentleman talk about how to create a podcast. And I thought, I can figure this out on my own. Right. But it's these little signs that come along the way per se to direct us to where we need to go. Yes. So and I love it so much because I I get to watch the lights go on in people's eyes. I get to watch parents' shoulders go down as they realize that it's possible. They found a new way to approach a, a, strug- a struggle or, or a challenge within their families. And yeah. so it's really been filling my soul for a long, long time. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we have good parents and we have good kids. And it's just being able for them to be in that place of alignment where they can communicate with a lot more ease than like, like you had in the bio talking about feeling like you're nagging and yelling. And I know one of the questions that always comes up is, am I doing good job as a parent? Mm -hmm. Am I, am I doing what I need to be doing? Because you only know what you came from as part of those guiding, guiding path or paving stones to help you get to where you are. Cause nobody came with the manual. And as a parent, it's your first time at, at a go as well. Exactly. Can you share some insights into some of the common challenges that parents face when trying to connect with toddlers through teens and how your approach helps them transform these dynamics? Yeah, definitely. So what's interesting is that every family is, of course, unique and and, and different. And a lot of us are going through the same things at the same times, but especially because of social media, um, uh, we, we kind of we parents families used to talk over the back fence in their in their backyards and complain about the same kind of things that were going on and now it doesn't seem to be happening that much so pe- families are more individual uh, like kind of in a silo and not necessarily airing all of the troubles that they're having and then social media shows us really the the very perfected and curated side of things and so a lot of the times we feel parents feel that they're on their own that this they're the only family where this specific challenges happening in reality that's just not the case and it and it was that way before cell phones came along and it has continued that way as well so the thing that I think is often getting in the way of that connection is the is is the fact that we as you said we've never done this before we're just going on what we've seen our par- our own parents do. And in our heart of hearts, we're all just, I, I like to say, and this is a life philosophy, not necessarily a company philosophy, but I really believe that we're all just kids walking around in adult costumes. And so whatever happens to us, you know, if something goes wrong and it doesn't work, we immediately become that little kid and we're like, oh my gosh, that person doesn't like me or I don't, I must not be good at this. I don't know what's going on. And so we get stuck in those thoughts, those, those recurring thoughts that are getting in our way yeah. and, or we get defensive. And so if we're feeling like somebody's not doing something to uh, or doing something to us, we're going to do it back to them. And so it, yeah. it does not create helpful connection. It creates conflict and harmful interaction. And so a lot of the time, what I'm working on with families is, is to rethink those positions where they are. So notice the feelings that are happening, notice the thoughts that are recurring, and then shifting that thought so that they can find the courage to step back into the conversation. With toddlers, that might look like a temper tantrum. With teens, that might look like they're not talking to us at all, or they're saying one thing and it's super mean and it 
an arrow comes right to the heart. And then again, we go back into that little harmed person. So really it's about exploring what's happening, connecting with ourselves, exploring what's happening within each of us so that we can then build a better connection with the people around us. Yeah. And, you know, understanding when our own buttons get pushed, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, the arrow through the heart, when they say something, it's like, I never want to hear that from my child. Right. Yeah. And um, that's where that parental guilt comes on. So why do parents tend to be so hard on themselves and how can they break the cycle of guilt to have more positive connections with their children? Oh, I love that question because guilt is a really a pretty useless emotion and one that most of us experience. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, and, and the interesting thing that I have found over the years is that parents are feeling guilty about, about things that are two sides of the same coin. So for instance, I I know we're in, in the middle of a major deep freeze in, in Alberta right now, (laughs) but in the summer, I, hear from parents who feel very, very guilty that they work all summer and they have to send their kids to camp. Mm-hmm. And I also hear from parents who feel very guilty that they don't work all summer and they don't have the money to send their kids to camp. So they keep their kids home from camp. So both both sides of the coin, right? And yet parents are feeling guilty. And guilt often comes from, the, the way I think about guilt is it's the difference between one's expectations and one's reality. So we expected something was going to go a certain way. And then when it doesn't go that way, we feel like we've done something, we've done something wrong to make that happen. And so if we get stuck in guilt, then we tend to give in to our kids more often, you know, we're feeling bad. So we give them extra things, or we maybe don't discipline them as much, or we buy them stuff, or none of those things influence parenting in a good way. They do not build connection. And so in order to get rid of guilt, we either need to lower our expectations, so bring them a little bit more in line with reality. We need to make the reality a little bit different, change our habits, change the way we're talking to our kids, manage our own reactive personalities a little bit, or do a little bit of both. And as we do that, we can get rid of the guilt, get rid of the energy that we're wasting on guilt, and invest more energy in moving forward, finding solutions, working with our kids to find the solution to the challenge. Oh, that sounds just freeing. (laughs) It's giving us all a deep breath. Um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What communication strategies do you find most effective in helping parents shift away from that feeling of nagging and arguing and yelling to moving to that safe, respectful conversations with their children? One of the ways that that happens, I I, I feel like parents often feel unlistened to. So that's why the nagging happens over and over and over again. And then when they're still unlistened to, they move to yelling and then the child is scared. And then often the child will do what they need to do. Not always. And then it, it can escalate again. So I think if we, if we bring that back to this idea that kids aren't listening, then one communication strategy that I talk about with a lot of families is this idea that we've taught our kids to not listen. So kids have a really good understanding because we all have many, many habits and kids have a really good understanding that we're probably going to say something two, three, four times before we get to that yelling place or before we walk in and pick the kid up and make them do it or whatever the thing is, there's some kind of cue that we give our child that says, this is the time you need to listen to me. Like we're done here. That Mm -hmm. we pull the computer out of their hands or, or, you know, the vein is bulging in our neck or we're turning red or whatever it is. It's the cue that says, Oh, 
this this time I need to listen. And right. so we basically taught our kids to ignore us the first few times. And part of the way we do that is because we're in a different room or we're spending time with another child in the family or we're on our phones and we're asking them to do something, but we're not really engaged with them. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to shift this is that before we give our child an instruction, we go to the child, get their attention, and then give them the instruction. And we're right there. So if they don't follow through, we're there to encourage them to follow through. So as an example, instead of you know calling from the kitchen and they're on another floor of the house, hey, it's dinner time. And you get this, you might get an answer. You might get a huh, or you might not get anything. <laughs> And then you go to the bottom of the stairs and you say, hey, it's dinner time. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming. And then you have to go up the stairs. So this is time number three and you're standing in the doorway. It's dinner time. And now you're louder. Yeah. And they're still, they're they're in their own zone. They're on their phone or on their computer or playing on a game or whatever it is. And so you go right up to the child that you get between them and the thing. And in the fourth time you say, it's dinner time. You need to come now. Yeah. And then they and then they either start to cry because you've been yelling at them or they, you know, or there's some other kind of conflict that happens. But for three times they knew that they didn't have to listen to you because they were waiting for the fourth time. And so mm-hmm. instead of doing all of that, if we can just keep our mouths closed when we're in the kitchen and keep our mouths closed when we're at the bottom of the stairs and keep our mouths closed when we're at the top of the stairs, walk into the child's room, notice that they're in the zone doing something else put a hand on their shoulder, get their attention, and then say, hey, buddy, it's time for dinner. And maybe they've got one minute left of something, or maybe, you know, maybe they're working on their homework, and they've, they're in, almost finished a problem. What's going on? And they might say, oh, I need two minutes. And you can say, okay, great. I'll set this timer for two minutes, or I'll stand here and watch you do that. And then let's go down. Are you going down ahead of me? Or shall we go down together? What are we doing? So when we only ask once, and we're there to facilitate the, the request actually happening, then there's a positive interaction, we connected with the child, we lost that feeling of being disrespected. And we didn't need to yell. It took a moment, but it was going to take the moment anyway. We were going to have to go up the stairs. We were going to have to go into the room. So let's go and do that before we start getting frustrated. And then we can have that moment of positive connection and communication and really shift the way we're all approaching the dinner table instead of just fighting with each other about it. And what a strong way to take initiative, but also role modeling, you know, that that type of work with people for them in their future, whether it be, you know, if they're leading teams or working in groups at school, that they can stay with that person and say, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? And the other thing that, you know, when you share your example is think about when we're all in the zone, we, when we're in the zone of doing something, it's hard to interrupt when we're in the middle of, you know, these great brainstorm coming down yeah. where the kids are like, they're almost at their level and yeah. they, and they don't want to do it. So it can really transform. I'm also curious if you've also seen the opposite of the kids start yelling at the parent. Uh, in order to get the kids, in, in order to get the parents' attention. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we're noticing that statistically, we're noticing that so much more 
um, again, since the development of the smartphone, and I am not anti-smartphone, <laughs> we're using it right now because we have a power outage, but I'm still <laughs> on my phone and able to do this. So I'm not anti-technology. And we know that there's this uh, this situation which has been labeled technoference, which is really that parents are on their phones and missing important cues from their kids. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then the child has to up their level of misbehavior to pull us back into into awareness, pull us out of this zone, right? So a lot of what I'll talk about with families is this idea of creating times within the family where their technology is put aside. So I often talk about that as meals and wheels. So like when we're having dinner, when we're eating together, and also when we're um, in, in a vehicle, because that a vehicle, it gives us such great opportunities for conversations as families. Um, but if everybody's on their device, then no, that's not happening. Or even opportunities to listen to the same thing. So have one person's music playing in the car instead of four different people being on four different devices or a story that's playing or a podcast that we're all listening to so that we can have conversations and connection around around that. Um, but And I go one step further because if, if you're on your phone and your teen your teen's got something on their chest or maybe not even a teen. So one of your kids finally gets the courage to come in to talk to you about something. They walk into the room. You don't look up and see their face. You're on your phone scrolling something, which probably in the grand scheme of things is not as important. Mm-hmm. They may just turn around and walk away because you didn't greet them. You weren't there to see it. And so just choosing when we're on our devices and when we're not on our devices can make a huge impact in the connection that we have within our families. Yeah. Cause I think attention and listening are such skills that we want to give that. And it's a gift to give someone your focus and attention. It's a gift mm-hmm. to, you know, stop and actually listen to what those cues, not only the nonverbal, of course, you know, and the verbal, that these are gifts that we can give each other that really can transform um, that connection. Absolutely. And yet I just want to step in here. I, I'm not here to lay a guilt trip. We just talked about guilt. Yeah. I, I, I'm not about, about that. And if we're finding that that connection is waning with our child, that might be a way to shift our our reality to a different level that we decide that when our child is around, we're going to put those devices aside. They may not walk in. And if they do walk in, we can notice them and we can just give them, we have that moment to say, oh my gosh, it's so great to spend time with you. Do you want to sit down and chat? And you might get no, but at least as an, as the adult in the situation, we offered that we, we opened up an opportunity for connection, whereas we might be missing, we might be closing off those opportunities if we're if we're not aware, if we're not creating that situation. Julie, I love how you say that because you know we could continue to offer those invitations mm-hmm. and hoping at one time that someone, one of them may pick it up when they feel the need that they know that, you know, mom, mom's offered a lot of times or dad has offered a number of times. I've just never needed it at that time, but this time I really need it to know that there is that space to have those conversations. Yeah, definitely. How do you guide parents to build the stronger, long-lasting connections, even when situations when it feels like they've lost hope for the, that there's any possibility of improvement? That That's actually my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> that is not schadenfreude. I am not excited that people are feeling so hopeless. And 
often we don't, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So if we've tried the same thing over and over again, and we keep landing in this situation where we're in an argument or we're just not having that conversation that needs to happen, if somebody can tell us, I mean, I'm sure you do this in your work. I think all experts do this within their own fields. If we can, because, because having done this for 23 years, I have heard almost every situation many, many times. Uh, and I've lived through them as well as a parent. And let me tell you, I'm much better at telling other people what to do than I am at doing it myself. But I have learned and I have gotten better over time as we all do in our parenting. Um, yeah. So when someone else can, and in this case, hopefully it's me, can put things in a different frame of reference, can talk about the developmental stage that the child is at, how they might be perceiving the conversation, ways to make it less about the child and more about the in the the situation at, at hand. So shifting the oftentimes we're, we're, we're and, and this is the same in, in so many interactions, right? When we talk about the person instead of the situation, you never do this. You always do that as opposed to mm -hmm. here's a situation. How do we move past this? So when, when we can, I, I often work with parents using different language so that they can shift the script. Often in families, we're replaying the same scripts over and over again. Mm -hmm. If we as parents shift our language, and create a little bit more, oh, there's a siren. <laughs> if we can create a little bit more space between something that's happening and instead of reacting in the moment and going off on our regular script, can we take a moment, can we breathe, can we hear what's being said and then can we step back in and respond in a thoughtful way, then we can shift the script and perhaps shift the way our child responds Mm -hmm. and then move forward. And I just had a parent tell me that last week. Um, actually, this happened twice in a row, but um, this parent had asked her kids to do this chore uh, and, and had given them a, a series of days over which to complete it. And lo and behold, they had waited until the last moment to complete the chore. <laughs> Shocking, happens all the time, right? <laughs> and she's like, today's the last day and I don't wanna get into an argument with them. And I said, are you gonna be home when you're, her, her kids are teens? I said, are you gonna be home when they get home from school? And she said, yeah. And I said, is there any way you can not be home when they get home from school? And she said, yeah, I could take the dog out for a walk. And I said, great. Why don't you put a little note on the door, assuming their intent to do the chore instead of assuming their lack of intent. So instead of saying, mm -hmm. don't forget, yeah, like you might want to do something else, but don't forget, you got to do this chore. Uh, I said, let's, let's assume that they're coming home, knowing that the moment they walk through the door, they're going to do the chore. And I said, why don't you leave a note on the back door? Uh, that says, uh, before you take your boots off, it might be helpful to just head right out to the garage, get that stuff done, and then it'll be done and, and you won't have to get dressed again. And she just left a little post-it note on the back door, went to walk the dog. When she got home, the chore was done. So part of it is just assuming positive intent versus assuming mm. malicious intent. And just finding that shift in language, uh, or even in this case, written language versus verbal language to uh, to encourage something to happen. And, and that just shifts the script. I hope I answered your question. I think I did. Absolutely, I did. you did. And it's also that it's not saying, well, today's the last day, you better get it done. <laughs> you know, It's saying, I know, you know, today's the last day. I know you're coming home to do this. Here's yeah. a thought I had, right? It's assuming the best of them. And when yeah. we assume the best of people, they often give us exactly that. 
Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Um, could you also share with us how children explore through the world? Because there's various stages of development and how to understand these stages to enhance that parent and child relationship. <laughs> how much time have you got? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know sometimes like, you know, the a parent will look at their child as if they've had the same experiences as they had though. So mm -hmm. if they're, yeah. you know, 50 some years old, they'll say, well, why can't you figure this out at 20? And I know we're talking about younger, but I'm, you know, even in your 30, when in your thirties or forties as a parent to say, well, you know, they should know this and no, they shouldn't because you're at a different developmental stage than your kids are. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. And there are so many different developmental stages. So this is exactly what I do with my clients is the first thing is just, I just ed educate, like, here's where we are. Here's what their brains, here's how their brains are hearing what you are saying. And here are the pieces of distraction that are filling their world. You know, when you've got a child going through puberty, and there's all sorts of things going through their minds and their bodies that we're not thinking of because we're just trying to get them to load the dishwasher, right? So yeah. um, part of it is just putting ourselves in their shoes. And um, and then also remembering that adult brain development, I mean, we just didn't know this years ago, but we do know it now because of magnetic resonance imaging and the ability to watch the brain in action um, instead of looking at brains that are, are dead or that are asleep. And so we can know that the adult brain doesn't develop their saying until around the age of 25 um, on average. So we're expecting these kids to be thinking with the same machinery that we are, and they're just not. And so if we keep expecting it, again, it's kind of that high expectations is very different than reality. But if we can be more realistic in our expectations, if we can know the brain power that they're working with, and then tailor our requirements to that brain, mm -hmm. then we set up a much better situation. And one of the things that I think is often really important, no, is always really important, is that we're working together with our kids, which doesn't mean that we don't set rules and that, and that we you know, have a democracy. I'm not saying that. But oftentimes we need to move away. My belief is we need to move away from autocracy. So instead of I'm the parent, I tell you, I have responsibility for everything, you do what I say, then we can shift it to, we've got a problem here. Yeah. You want this, I want this. How do we make this happen? Within the boundaries that I'm setting, right? And the moment that we can make this about us working together, instead of me telling you how it's going to go, or me fighting with you to push you into my way, then we have uh, the ability to teach our kids how to problem solve. And we have this, again, this connection that enables us to move forward, to move our family forward. And remember these moments and times where we worked together mm -hmm. to solve a problem. And I, and I think as kids get older and they can go back to those situations where, you know, mom or dad actually took time with me to figure out how we could work things through together versus coming from that top down mentality, right? For sure, because when we take all the responsibility, like I hear from parents all the time who are like, everything falls on my plate. I am responsible for everything. I make dinner, I clean up dinner, I choose dinner. I, you know, we, we are hearing a lot about the mental load and, and um, oftentimes our behavior encourages that because when we only tell kids what to do and when we don't have them take responsibility for their actions, but yeah. we take on all the responsibility, then we're overburdened. 
Mm-hmm. And we're not letting our kids learn that they're capable of taking that responsibility. So oftentimes it's about shifting some of our habits to allow our kids to take on the responsibility, even though that often takes more time mm-hmm. and it's more frustrating. It's part of that learning growing process. Yeah. Parents often feel frustrated with their efforts, seeming to yield no results. How do you help parents navigate, especially those moments where they're having that frustration, feeling overwhelmed? Yeah. Well, one thing I do is listen. Yeah. (laughs) I do a lot of listening Mm -hmm. and validating that they're not, that, that, that they're having that experience, that it's a very, very normal experience. They're not the first person to have it. And that it feels awful. And then I, again, I, I think I might've mentioned this before. I come back to the kinds of thoughts that we tell ourselves because mm. oftentimes when we're in a situation where something's going badly and it's happened the same time, you know, it's that kitchen table conversation at whatever time at night where you're just like, oh, we ended up in this exact same argument again. And I'm dreading tomorrow because I know it's going to be the same thing again. Mm. And so then we start having these internal thing conversations like, if I was a better parent, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, mm-hmm. if my, my poor kid, because they've got me as a parent, but if they had somebody else, they would be doing better. Um, and then we're feeling guilty and we're feeling shameful. Um, or why is my kid being such a jerk? Why is my kid giving me such a hard time? And, and there's an, there's one that I can use as, as an example. So if we are constantly telling us ourselves, my kid is giving me such a hard time. I can't believe my kid's giving me such a hard time. Why is he being such a jerk? Why is she being like this to me all the time? Yeah. Then we're just building that child into this horrible villain persona. If we can shift our thought to, and, and this is something I learned from Rini Jane at Gozen, but if we can shift our thought to, instead of my kid is giving me a hard time, my kid is having a hard time. Mm, that's powerful shift right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because then it's not him getting at me or her getting at me. It's, oh, my kid is having a hard time. How can I help them? What might that hard time be? What what might they be feeling? Oh, you know, they said they've got this big exam coming or they're feeling they felt really frustrated that they couldn't have a brownie. Like it, like it doesn't have to be they can't pay the mortgage. Like it doesn't have right. to be the same hard times as we're yeah. having but it can still feel super heavy to a little body, right? And so if we can notice my child is having a hard time, then if we've removed the malicious intent, then we have an opportunity to say, oh, wow, you're having a really hard time. How can I bring some kindness to this? How can I support you through this? Mm-hmm. And our shift, our, our way of being, firstly, we're not beating ourselves up anymore and we're not assigning this ogre mentality to our child. Then we're just in a, oh, how can we make this better? And once we're there, there is this opportunity, this, this, this open window of hope and possibility. And from there, we can pick ourselves up and move on because we know that there are multiple possibilities. Now, you might not know what to do in that situation, but then you could Google it. You could call me. You could go to one of my many, many videos that I have in my parent break community or, or in the podcast that, that we had for two and a half years. And you can look it up and you can listen. You can find new words. Um, you could talk to a friend or talk to your, your parenting partner about, you know, I realized my, our child is going through a tough time here. How can we help them? So all of a sudden there's this opportunity, there's this possibility of hope and, uh, and that makes things much easier to face. Right. And I, and I think I can see the language also, like when we think about that villain persona, you're talking about 
especially among siblings. I think that's very powerful to teach them as well. Cause right away they're like, Oh, they're always like that. That's their personality where it's not the personality they're having a hard time. And we can start teaching compassion among siblings as well um, to say they're having a hard time. How do you think we could help them? Yeah. And also in that setting. So anytime, well, this is kind of moving to a different, uh, a different idea, but but we all need different ideas because different things work for different families, right? Yeah. But oftentimes if we assign, the moment we hear ourselves assigning someone as a villain, like the the, the role of the villain, yeah. then we know uh, from Karpman's drama triangle that we are in a drama. We are creating drama. The moment we assign mm. the role of victim or villain or hero to anyone in a scenario. Yeah. And often we're, we're assigning that role of victim to me. You know, why is this person doing this to me? Then mm-hmm. we're in a drama and in a drama, Cartman says there's an imbalance of responsibility. So the, so a villain, no, a victim in a drama will say, uh, 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 just by definition, a victim is someone, I wasn't doing anything. This just happened to me. Right. Yeah. I had I had no responsibility. I was just sitting here and my my sibling walked in and punched me in the head or or took my blocks. I was just playing with this truck and he took my truck. Right. Right. Uh, the villain often will say that they had very little responsibility. I had to do that. I had to push that guy because he just pushed me. I had to take the truck because they weren't giving it to me. And so, again, very little responsibility being taken. And then oftentimes the hero and in this situation is taking too much responsibility. So the hero often played by uh, by uh, the people that we know well, the moms or the dads, the parents <laughs> comes in and says, no, 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 no. We've got, I'm, I'm gonna make everything right for everybody and I'm gonna figure it and, and takes on all the responsibility. So Cartman's way out of the drama triangle is for each of us to take our own responsibility within that situation. And so if we can teach our kids that, if we if if we can, not in the heat of the moment, because no change is going to happen in the heat of the moment when we're very right. emotional. But a few minutes later, when we can say, okay, who, you know, if you've got a child who's, who's struggling with a sibling or struggling with a friend at school, who really seems to be being the villain here, um, we can say to them, you know, if you had to give somebody the the role of villain and somebody the role of victim and somebody the role of hero who's playing what role and 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 often the child will say i'm the victim and say okay so what responsibility can you take to get yourself off of the drama triangle here what what's one thing that you can do to make it different well i could ask for what i wanted or well i could walk away and and not engage with someone who's treating me badly or well i could go to the teacher and and ask for help and I don't know the situation. It's different every time. But right. the moment we start helping someone to take on responsibility, they get out of the drama and they feel like they have a way of taking control. They have autonomy. They have agency. And that helps people to feel more capable in the moment. And yeah. that's really what we're going for there. And then we're empower- empowering our kids to really mm-hmm. um, develop really strong leadership skills for their themselves like self-leadership in their own growth definitely parents often rely on what they know from their own upbringing how do you empower them to make the new choices and break away from patterns that were not serving them like you said earlier you know um, when we're doing the same things over and over how do we make that shift part of it is just noticing that 
So when, if you hear yourself saying that, that's the first step, right? Like, it's like, oh, like, oh. wow, maybe this could be different. And I guarantee you it could be different because yeah. there's got to be another way. There's got to be something else you could say or something else you could do or a different way of thinking about it. Or and And oftentimes it takes working with someone else, which is, of course, why I do what I do. Um, and I have many free resources as well as as paid resources. But, you know, even talking to a friend, have you ever had this happen? Have it has it changed? And how did you get it to change? Uh, and it take that take that requires a certain level of vulnerability, right? Because mm. if you're going to admit that something isn't working, and of course, you find the friends that that are those trusted friends, it, or perhaps it's somebody you don't know, maybe you sit down at the bus stop, and you know, this is this person that you're never going to see again. So anyway, there are lots of there are lots of people in the world that are there to help us. I like to believe that most people want to help other people. Um, and it's really just asking the question, how could this be easier? What could I do differently? And from there, the moment we ask that, often if we can just even verbalize that, then the universe, I believe, brings us this information that we need. So maybe somebody's yeah. listening to the podcast today and they're like, oh, I didn't know that, but now I have an idea. It could be different. Yeah. Um, but when we're stuck in that same script, you know, I. I had the same meal for Thanksgiving dinner for many, many, many years. And then one year we went to somebody else's house and they had ham. And I was like, not turkey? Like this could be different. <laughs> I just thought everybody had turkey, right? So yeah. part of it is when we're doing the same thing and when, and when it's all we've ever known, we can't even imagine that it could be different. But someone in the house next door to you is having ham instead of turkey on Thanksgiving and you never knew it. So if there's always an opportunity to find a new a new menu of choices, right? Yeah, a new menu. And also for the part of parenting that you had like the years before into where you are now, not to uh, shame, like we talked about guilt and shame, it's not going to serve you. Um, no. But knowing that you can make new choices and form new connections, even though maybe it had a rocky start, you know, Definitely. And, and it yes. is possible to shift. Julie, can you share a success story where a positive parenting technique resulted in a significant positive impact, um, showing that that transformation occurs? Yeah. So I just shared that story the other day about that mom not getting into an argument with her teenage kids. Yeah. And, and she's been working with me for about a month and, and on her own single parenting and just finding those recurring arguments. So Obviously, that little chore conversation was a teeny tiny part. Um, yeah. But but another um, part of that was that, uh, as often is the case, we tend to get into similar arguments with similar kids over similar things. So yeah. our kids all play different roles, and we might have the child who is very eager to please and follows all the instructions, or most of them, you know, the person who does what we want, and then we have the child whose who whose way of engagement within the family is to not do what we're asking and mm. to, and to get our attention that way. And so, um, and so in this, again, in this particular situation, uh, the, the child just was not doing it and using, um, kind of schoolwork and homework and exams to be the reason that, that the chore wasn't happening, mm -hmm. uh, or, or just didn't even want to engage in a conversation about the chores. And oftentimes we are just like, well, you have to talk about this because we have to do this and we have to blah, blah, blah. And so oftentimes, again, this idea of listening, I, I was, I, I have to tell you that I was just listening to your, uh, I think it was your December 18th episode of your podcast with the lovely woman whose name I, I 
obviously didn't listen to you well enough, Laura, maybe, who was oh, yes. talking about listening, listening, listening. And, and that's a big part of it is so often when we enter into a conversation with our kids, we have our agenda, they have their agenda, and we're, no one's listening. And so I, I said, well, what if instead of continuing that conversation, you just took a moment to really listen to the challenge that your child is having, which is, she's a teenager with a high level of pressure around what's going on at school. And she mm -hmm. doesn't feel like she has time to do this other stuff because she needs to study. She needs to get this homework done. Yeah. So as you go to have this conversation and she says, I've got too much homework, take a moment and say, wow, that homework is, there's, is really, that's a lot of pressure on you. You really need the time to do this homework age. And then the teenager, mm -hmm. and so she did this and, and the teenager said, yeah, and I'm really overwhelmed and I've got to get the studying done. And the mom said, okay, so what's your plan for studying? Like, like, are you going to work on this now for the next half an hour, 45 minutes? And she said, I really want to put in an hour of studying. And the mom said, awesome. I'm going to set the timer for an hour. And at the end of that, when you're taking your break, can you please do this chore that needs to happen? And she said, yeah, totally. If you can wait for it to happen, I'll do it right at the end of the hour. You know, and that was the end. And they walked away and the timer went off and the kid got up and did the, the work and that was it. So just taking that moment mm -hmm. to listen and to be and to understand where the other person was coming from and then make a plan from there instead of making it, this has to happen on my time because as a good parent, mm -hmm. I enforce the rules and you listen to me. <laughs> it really shifted the process. So I hope I, I painted that picture for you, but there's... I thankfully this mom is really, really expressive. And actually she sent me a lot of texts because I, I, when I'm working with families in coaching, we have our coaching time, but we also, they have the ability to text me and, and just check in with me. And she sent me lots yeah. of texts about, you're a genius. It worked. It worked. And I'm like, yeah, Not really, but I'm really glad it worked because changing yeah. our language changes everything. Yeah. And it's the simplest shifts. It's mm -hmm showing that deeper listening, showing that you acknowledge that they have their own pressures and not just focusing on your own. So Julie, we like, I have more questions, of course, but <laughs> we'll have to have you back for that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what is one book that has transformed your life and how you approach how you live your own life? Oh, wow. I am a, definitely a bookaholic. So my that <laughs> one. If, if, if I branched out, if I took you on a tour around my house, there are literally piles of books in our living room because we are big readers here. There is a book that I use that I used with my family and that I still use in my work and that I recommend to almost every family I work with right now. And it's called The Family Virtues Guide by Linda Cavalin Popov. Oh. And it's it's a it's a book of virtues, which sounds uh, like it might not be relevant, but the reason I feel it's relevant is because a lot, our kids learn what they live and live what they learn. So mm. kids are learning their values by watching the values that we live, not necessarily the values that we verbally espouse, but the values that we actually act on and live all the time. And a long time ago, when, when everybody was perhaps more involved in their religious institution, a lot of values were taught that way. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that it's not taught that way anymore. 
And I think we have an opportunity as families to really dig into the values that are important to us that we want to teach to our kids. How are we teaching them? By living them. And how do we know that? By actually taking the time to think about it. So the Family Virtues Guide has a whole bunch of different, what they call virtues, what I call values, semantics, really. Right. And just um, talking about, giving us ways of talking about that with our kids from when they're little, like from when they're three or four, but all the way up. So we can start getting really clear on what's important to us as a family. And from there, we can make sure that we're paying attention to it, talking about it, acting on it. How are we going to show this value? How, if kindness is important to us, how are we showing that? And then we can, that can be part of the dinner table conversation. How did you see kindness in action today? What was one way that you showed kindness this week? What did you, how did you see a family member um, another family member showing kindness. And so we can kind of focus on that as a family. And again, it gives us another way to build community and connection and have our kids realize that they're a part of something bigger so that they don't feel alone. Mm. So that to me is a really valuable book. And it's just, I go back to it time and again. Very powerful. I always love listening to the books that have transformed people's lives. Cause I'm like, oh, another one for my list. <laughs> Final question is, what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? Uh, I think I have to come back to that connection and community people mm-hmm. part of it. Uh, I really, I so I'm telling you what it means to society and I'll, then I'll tell you why it means it to me. We know that people are feeling more and more alone. Pandemic really showed us that. We know that mental health uh, tragedies are up, up, up. And we know that we're being very divisive uh, within our just society right now, or or we're seeing that a lot anyway. We're being fed that message and and we're experiencing it in our media. Mm -hmm. And so we, when people feel alone, they give up. And when people feel that they're part of a community, this is my belief, when Mm -hmm. people feel that they're part of a community, they hang on because they know that they have responsibilities within the the community and people care about them and people would be hurt Mm -hmm. by them leaving. And so community is is critical and it's super important to me. Um, And and I have so many communities. I'm so lucky because I do this parenting work. I'm also a Tai Chi teacher. So I have my Tai Chi classes in that community. I'm I'm a professional singer, a professional choral singer. So I have my whole choir community. And I'm a part of a ton of communities, tons of amazing people in my life that teach me, Artist Morning, our community. Um, And that provides such richness because there are so many amazing examples of humanity uh, and for us to, from which we can learn and, and just the day-to-day humanity, not the, not the one in a million, but the, every person is one in a million. And so spending time with each of those people and, and, uh, learning from them and learning with them. That is, that is how I'm very, very, very rich. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Beautiful. I I love it. Um, Of course, what I want to make sure we end on is letting people know how they can connect with you, how they can work with you. And I know you've mentioned a few of your resources. I'd just love you to do a quick recap. Absolutely. So there, there are many and probably the very best way to find me is to go to my link tree, which is at julie.f.s. You can follow me on Instagram that way. Another way is to go to LinkedIn. I, I have weekly articles that I publish on LinkedIn. So I'm Julie Friedman Smith on LinkedIn. You can go to my 
parent-break.com website. So parent-break, parent-break.com. And uh, that is a free resource that I did for the year of 2023. Um, and all of the videos for that are on our private Facebook page. So that is a, a little bit, it's kind of artist morning, but tiny for parents. So a little bit of meditation, uh -huh. a little bit of journaling, a parenting tip every week. Uh, my meditations are on Insight Timer under Parent Break as well. So there's lots of different ways. But find me and, and message me. And if, if you're a follower of this podcast and you, you want to spend some time working with me, I'm happy to do a, a $99 coaching session with you, uh, which is quite a discounted fee from my normal fees. But yeah. there are all sorts of ways. And I'm just building a new offering that'll be ready probably within the next month uh, membership program, but that's not quite ready to go. So probably the best way to get get a hold of me is through one of those other ways that I mentioned. I am very happy to answer questions and talk about how we might work together. Uh, so please check in with me because again, I love building my community. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julie. Um, I so appreciate that you came on the show and shared your wisdom, tips, strategies, really helping parents transform those relationships with our children who are our future adults. So I am very grateful and blessed that you came on the show here today. Thanks. It's always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to all of you watching uh, our YouTube channel or listening to us on um, your podcast way. And uh, I'd also invite you to go over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com. Right now it's Reset Your Mindset is an article I put together of different ways to shift your mindset when you feel like you're going off track. And as Mahama Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And as always, go out and make today great.